Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Baltimore, Maryland, in particular the Sagamore Pendry Hotel right here on the water in Baltimore. I've been coming to Baltimore, God, since I was in junior high school on my very first, of course, class trip to Washington, D.C. We came right through Baltimore. I've always wanted to come back. I've come back many times since. Imagine a city founded in 1729. It, It claims to be the largest independent city in the U.S., but what's amazing is the renaissance they've had uh, in the rebuilding areas of the, of the harbor all around the city and maintaining the history as well and preserving the architecture. But I'm honored to be joined right now by the 50th mayor yes. of the city of Baltimore and the third consecutive woman mayor in this city. How about that? How about that? Smart Catherine city. How are you, Madam Mayor? I'm great. Absolutely great. Yeah. You excited to be here? I'm very excited to be here, especially with you, knowing all the great news that you spread around the oh, world. Oh, now, don't you suck up to me. <laughs> I like doing that. <laughs> <laughs> so that when you leave here, you leave with this great impression of this great city. But I've always had a great impression of this city. Awesome. Because I first discovered Baltimore, I'll, I'll tell you, I was in junior high school. Of course, we took our class trip to Washington, D.C. Wow. But we on did, the, too. I, we, it, was a, it, was, it was mandatory, right? <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> but the thing is, on the way, 
We stopped in Baltimore. Awesome. I never knew anything about Baltimore. And I'm a boat person. I'm a water person. Look out the window here at this hotel. What are we looking at? At water. Yeah. Beautiful harbor. Yeah. Uh, beautiful boats, ships coming in, and surrounded by great hotels and retail space, uh, wonderful restaurants. You're starting to see a renaissance here. Oh, absolutely. In fact, it's probably started some time ago, but what has happened is that our transformation has spilled over to the other part of the city. So we started early uh, where we would call over by the, uh, we call it the west part of the city. Uh, when we did the Columbia Magnet, uh, we would call Mr. Jim Rouse, uh, did the uh, the Harbor Place yeah. development. So it started there. But that was a number of years ago. Oh, that was moons ago. But yeah. what's happening over here is really transformative. I mean, that transformed that part of the city. And this is transforming all of, um, helping to transform all of downtown as well as add to the footprint of Canton and other parts of our city that people don't get a chance to see. Now, I know you're a Philadelphia girl. I am born and raised, but this is Baltimore is home. Yeah, and I'm a Ravens fan and an Orioles fan. <laughs> well, you have <laughs> but, to be. You're the mayor. Look, those were some great Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? I got to tell you, I was not rooting for the Patriots. I, I ha- was definitely I had it with the Patriots. I'm Philadelphia Eagles all the way, yeah. and my dad would have been proud to see them win. So uh, I, I had to cheer for the Eagles. Well, you had to. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a certain arrogance about the Patriots, enough already. Right? Well. You're not going to say that, but I I'm just not say I know. I knew you were going to say I know the mayor, it. so I can't do that. <laughs> well, it wasn't the mayor's fault. I know. Mm-hmm. No. no. But bottom line is, whenever I walk around Baltimore, and I'm sure you have the same experience, you walk through history. Oh, no question about it. You know, this is the home of the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, it is just... Uh, just a beautiful place of history. We think about just having celebrated the 200th anniversary of Frederick Douglass, uh, who was a businessman here as well. Uh, it is the birthplace of some of the strongest African-American businesses in the country. Um, this is just a, it's just a wonderful place of history, Fells Point. Uh, and again, when you're walking around this particular part of the city, you're still walking on cobblestones. Right, literally eight feet from this hotel. Right, where, ho- where horses used to pull up and, and, and tie and be tied. Why don't uh, you bring the horses back? Well, we are. We are. Uh, our police department. Uh, we used to have mounted police officers, and so we're building a new mounted police unit. You see, this gets back to neighborhoods. Absolutely. This gets back to, you know, every police chief that I talk to, if they know what they're talking about and they know their neighborhoods, they realize that the key to good policing is knowing your neighborhoods. Absolutely. And, and policing the neighborhoods in, in, on the old the days of the cops who were on beats. Well, what's interesting, we just, uh, named a new, um, just named a new police commissioner who actually rode in the mounted police unit. And, uh, so you have an ally in that department. So we have an ally in that department. We're, we're bringing back the mounted police unit. I grew up with mounted police. They used to quarter their horses. I'm a New York City boy. And two blocks of my house was the armory where George Washington used to quarter his horses. Absolutely. Guess what? So did the cops. Yes. And up until about 25 years ago, that's where they were. Well, we're expanding ours. Uh, he's very excited about it. We are, and I'm sure the community will be excited about that as well. You were talking about the Humane Society here in Baltimore. And just think uh, what that brings to the community, especially young people, to see uh, police officers on horses, to be able to walk up to them and have conversations with them and their horses. Well, you just said the big bad C word, which people have forgotten about. It's 
conversation. It is conversation. I mean, when you can, you know, here's the biggest problem that I have, for example, with airport security. They always ask questions that could be answered by yes or no. It accomplishes nothing. Nothing. Because you're not having a conversation. So, you know, one of the things I do like doing is walking through neighborhoods and communities and having conversations with people and the excitement, especially around what's happening here. Uh, the Pendry just represents just such a, a classic uh, you know, redevelopment of, of history yeah. in our city. This is where one, movies have been shot. It's, it was shut down. And look what they've done. I mean, this is iconic. And if you've not been here, we certainly, and since we're talking on your show and it's worldwide, I get to invite people to come and see the Pendry because it is just absolutely beautiful. Well, it, you know, I was I was talking to, to some of your folks the other day, and, and the bottom line is it's not just about talking about Baltimore in a one-dimensional way. People are going to come to the U.S. I'm talking about your foreign visitors. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to fly into they're going to fly into Dulles or they're going to fly into JFK. They may not be flying to BWI. Well, let me just say this to yeah. you: um, that there more people are flying into BWI because of its access to Washington D.C. Oh, listen, and it's easy. It's of a great access. airport. Look, your airport. Uh, you couldn't pay me to go to Dulles. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I love BWI for two reasons. One, if I'm taking the train, it's there. Yes. If I'm taking the plane, the train is there. Yes. Right? And how cool is that? It is so cool. But it's also underutilized. Well, I mean, it's growing. It's growing. I know, South, I Southwest know. has made it its hub, and I tell Delta they might they might want to move up here. <laughs> you told we, that to Delta, we, didn't you? We'll give you some tax incentives to create a hub here in Baltimore. Hey, well, listen, after the NRA, the Del- Delta, Delta might move here. Delta might need to move here, and we'll yeah. welcome Delta <laughs> right here. Well, you know, uh, I think one of the greatest things about Baltimore is that uh, we are cited on almost every list when you talk about the coolest city. Forbes just named us one of the top 10 coolest cities to, to visit um, and to live in. And then the New York Times, uh, we are 15th among 52 cities around the world to visit. It is a city that you shouldn't miss. And Southwest Airlines, that 23, 24-page spread about Baltimore and all oh, the sure. activities. Well, the, the cool thing about it, let's go back to your airport for a second. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never feel crowded there. No. Um, uh, you have a pretty good operational history in, in terms of getting in and out, yes. right? I mean, there are no long lines, as you'll see at other airports. Well, you don't have to catch a train to go someplace, I mean, to get out of the airport. Yeah. <laughs> you can actually get off the plane and walk to your desk, you know, to, to your car, to your taxi cab, or whatever it is that's going to take you to your ultimate destination. You don't have to come out of the airport, get on a train, then at some point get to your destination, walk 10 miles, and, and maybe you your ride will be there. So you had the airport experience. I oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I get to fly a lot and visit a lot of different cities, and I would have to agree, not just because I'm here, uh, but because I've been in airports throughout the country. You it's don't a drive great... me nuts, and I understand the intention of it, but you go to the Charlotte airport, and what do they have? Rocking chairs, right? What's the message they're sending you? You're going to be here a while. <laughs> wow, right, so relax. <laughs> yeah, but the point is, you shouldn't be at an airport a while. No, the purpose is to get through an airport. Through, through an yeah. airport, and yeah. we make it very convenient here in Baltimore. So, again, if you're flying into D.C., you might want to fly into Baltimore, and it's much easier access to Washington, D.C., easier to get through. Well, you bookend it. You do both. You yes. get a twofer. Right. You can go to D.C., but you can come to the great city of Baltimore, and we welcome you. You're not promoting the city now, are you? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> when I think about all the attributes, look, we've got a big event coming up, Light City, real shortly, and we're inviting people. Yeah, we'll talk from, about that later in the show. Sure, because um, we're inviting people from all around the world. Come, over half a million people visit, so it's a great place yeah, to Yeah, last year, it was almost, I think, almost a half a million people. Almost came. a yeah. half a million people. Amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. To see a couple of light installations it's on the water. A, it's not just a couple. We go out into the neighborhood. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> we, we invite everybody, because it's just such a great, it's a great event. 
charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. My next guest has the world's best name, if you're in this part of the word. You can't make this up. Come on, tell me your name. It's Johns Hopkins. Okay, stop right there. <laughs> but he also has a great title. He's the executive director of Baltimore Heritage. If you want to know about the history of this area, you're my go-to guy. I'm not going to ask you about how much trouble you had in high school with that name. It's an eyebrow raiser. Pretty much every day is an eyebrow raiser. I know, but you're here. I wouldn't be anywhere else. You know, the thing about Baltimore that I love is that everywhere I walk, I mean, you don't have to look far to find history. It's that's one of the greatest parts about this city is our neighborhoods and our history is everywhere. We can touch it in every street corner. I mean, even right in, in this in this neighborhood where this hotel is, it may not be good on your shock absorbers, but you're going down cobblestone streets. <laughs> Absolutely. And there's tons of stories behind that on uh, trading beginning in the 1600s, uh, mud covered streets paved with the ballast of ships. Uh, and now we walk and drive on them in one of the greatest seaport historic seaport communities in the country. And, you know, when people mention historic seaport communities, Baltimore, in my mind, at least not until recently, didn't come up to didn't come to mind. I was thinking of, of New England, Mystic Seaport, of course, the New England Seaport, I mean, a New York City Seaport. But Baltimore played a huge role. Absolutely. I mean, in addition to some of the finest privateers uh, out there uh, helping win the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 uh, by uh, capturing innumerable British uh, ships, uh, even one of our daring captains single-handedly ran a blockade of the entire British Isles running up and down uh, the English Channel somewhat farcically uh, and colorfully, but, uh, but full of Baltimore pride all along, uh, to uh, immigration along with Ellis Island. Our, our, See, everyone uh, thinks Ellis Island, but, right. it, but it was here as well. Hundreds of thousands of immigrants came into Baltimore's Locust Point right across the water from where we are now, um, and thankfully, uh, a lot of them stayed, and our city is very much a city of immigrants. And a city of generations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Many, many, many people here are third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth generation. I mean, when you came here, obviously you had to absorb all the history as well to be able to put it in perspective. It's all about context. But bottom line is when people come to visit you now, what do you show them that blows their mind that they had no idea actually was here? There are a number of things that uh, I like to show my out-of-town visitors. Um, one of the stories that I think uh, is a surprise is in our Mount Vernon neighborhood and the beginning But this of is different than Mount Vernon... Mount Vernon, Virginia. Right. Correct. Although it's the same George Washington. We've got the nation's uh, first monument to, to George, to our president and our general. Um, but a story that doesn't get told as much is uh, the founding of American philanthropy, the idea that, uh, that you can go from rags to riches, and only in America... A guy named George Peabody uh, went from a, um, a poor young boy in Massachusetts, uh, made a fortune selling hardware in Baltimore in the early 1800s, and decided that only in America, only in Baltimore, could he have gotten that opportunity. And he gave a million dollars, a little over a million dollars. Back then, which was huge. Which was enormous. Um, it was sort of the Bill Gates and Warren Buffett uh, magnitude back then. 
uh, to found the Peabody Institute to help other people better themselves. Um, importantly, he convinced his younger colleagues, uh, uh, Enoch Pratt and Johns Hopkins, to do the same. Enoch what was Pratt. that name I heard? Enoch, yeah. No, yeah, the well, other name. The other name. Well, that, well, that would be the name that I share. <laughs> um, the other famous Johns Hopkins, yeah. right? Uh, no, the famous one, of course, founded the hospital and university and medical school. Um, Enoch Pratt founded the first free lending library in the country. So this idea of rags to riches and an obligation to give back that later generations like Andrew Carnegie, the founding of libraries all over the country, all came from, uh, from uh, Baltimore and really this cauldron of opportunity that we had. Um, and I think uh, the legacy is still there for that. You know, when I was growing up and playing games like Monopoly, I came across this name. It was a, place, a piece on the board. And then I was going through the original maps of the transcontinental airlines and they followed the railroads. Uh, literally, uh, they had plane spotters. When Charles Lindbergh flew the first transcontinental flight on TAT, the predecessor to TWA, the actual map they flew was the rail line, and they had people on the rail line spotting the plane, and that was the B&O. That was the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, right? The, uh, the, or, the, the uh, first starting point and the first mile of, mile of track of American railroading is still here. Um, wonderful museum, an enormous roundhouse, antique trains, and you can get on a train and travel the first mile of railroad track in America. Which, by the way, probably beats Amtrak. You can actually travel a mile. <laughs> We've, we, we, you can go the mile and you can come back and it all works. <laughs> it's amazing. But people forget, you know, we think Dwight Eisenhower said that the interstates built America. No, the trains built America. Absolutely. That was our first, uh, first real forays into the West, uh, being Pennsylvania and Ohio at that time. But uh, absolutely. How far west did the B&O go? Well, it was, it was the Baltimore and Ohio. Its terminus was uh, Cincinnati, um, and a lot of the folks, the immigrants who came through uh, uh, Locust Point here got on the B&O Railroad and went to places like St. Louis and Milwaukee and Cincinnati, and uh, their immigrant histories uh, have a portal through, uh, through Baltimore City. It all came through Baltimore. Absolutely. Toto, I've a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You know, when you go around the, the, the water here and you go around the harbor and you see the renaissance, uh, the rebuilding, the restoration, uh, the renovation with a certain degree of care and, and concern for history, uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty good thing. Uh, there's development and then there's common sense and, and you have to hand it to the people who have redeveloped this area with a great amount of common sense. One of my guests who's joining me now, you know, we talk about celebrity chefs and everybody has to have a, a, a celebrity chef with a, um, a celebrity television show. I, I call him a celebrity chef without a show that way. He's celebrity chef because he's figured it out how to keep it local and how to keep it pure. He's the executive chef at Gunther & Company, Jerry Trice. How are you, sir? Good, Peter. How are you? Thanks for having me. You got it. I mean, one of the things that, that drives me nuts at restaurants is they try to do like a, an experiential one-upsmanship game where oh yeah you know the deal where you're, you're we're a competitive bunch yeah well you are a competitive bunch but it's sort of like uh uh you know the silverware has to be art pieces and the and the, and every sh and every dish has to be sort of like this mystery of how many different ingredients is in there and or in, are in there and it doesn't really make a difference at the end of the day 
Um, obviously, there's a certain amount of showmanship involved in every restaurant because you want to feel entertained. You want to feel welcome. It's all part of the hospitality business. But That's you look the at, word right there. Right, but you look at it in a different way, don't you? I do. I think, um, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, you really got to wonder how much time did they, did they delve into this fork in your hand. And I think, like a Gunther and Company, where, you know, obviously I'm biased because I have some say in that, but we're, I'd rather remember your name and what you drink and what you eat. Well, let's I think talk, that's yeah. more hospitality than all the dramatics around you because people can overcome a lot, but if they're not, if you're not welcomed into a warm setting uh, with people that actually care and, you know, and, uh, you know, give a damn about you, why would you want to come back? Well, you also get into the stereotype aspects of what you eat. You know, the first time you, you mentioned the world word Baltimore or Maryland, the next word out of everybody's mouth is crab cake. That's right, hon. <laughs> crab cakes, riots, football. We're, uh, we're, uh, we're overcoming some of those. Uh, the crab cake game has always been here because Baltimore is for crabs, but at Gunther & Company, we really don't delve into the crab cake, the also-ran game, because you can get that kind of anywhere, and it's never going to be as good as your mom made. It's never going to be as good as your favorite crab cake restaurant that one time in San Francisco, that one time in Baltimore. It's just, it's, it's a highly perishable item. It's expensive, and it's just, it's, they kind of gear it for, like, the 53-year-old Pennsylvania tourist. <laughs> and I want to build lasting relationships. I'm not a one-and-done guy. So you're not, you're not the restaurant that has the sign outside saying, we welcome 53-year-old Pennsylvania tourists? Uh, not a neon, no. That's not, <laughs> not us. All right, so you've, you've made a conscious effort to steer away from the crab cakes, but you still want to be quintessentially Baltimore. I love to eat them. Don't get me wrong. Uh, we are quintessential Baltimore because, well, my wife is from Baltimore. I'm a Virginia native, but, All right, so you got uh, a but pass I'm a on transplant. Yeah, yeah, but... But that's still the Chesapeake Bay watershed. That's where the bounty of most of the things I was lucky enough to have in my life growing up came from. Um, I was lucky enough to have a grandfather that, you know, teach you how to crab, teach you how to fish, teach you how to hunt. And this is where it comes from. And don't, you know, blank where you eat, but you can't, you got to believe in what you're doing. And Baltimore is believe. You got to believe in the Renaissance. You got to believe in putting roots down. And we are, you know, owner-operator, you have to walk the walk. And if you're not really into it 100% in your heart and your actions, you're not really going for yourself, are you? You're, 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 you're trying to spin it, and it's not, that's not a healthy place where I want to be at this point in my life. Although at the same time, somebody visiting Baltimore has certain expectations that you're going to say, put those on the table, let me show you something else. Absolutely. Um, the crab cake thing, I mean... <laughs> Almost all my oysters come from uh, the East Coast. Uh, most of them come from the Chesapeake Bay. Um, that's the bounty that we're in currently seasonally. Uh, crab is great, but if you're not supporting these crabbers in the winter when the crabs are buried underneath the mud, underneath the Chesapeake Bay, they're harvesting the oysters. That's what you should be doing. Invasive species as well, you know, the puffer fish, the snakehead, we use those, too, because that's what we should be using to kind of help support the whole ecosystem that's out there. All right, so let's get down to definition of terms. I have not been at a, at a restaurant lately where the menu says, tonight on the, on the menu, we got snakehead. You don't know me that well, Peter. <laughs> um, yeah, the snakehead what, you do, was kind you of a, a... snake. You have a snakehead brioche? I mean, what? Well, um, 
can't really advertise those things now because something about crossing state lines with the fish and the fine and something like that, but I have served a great deal of snakeheads um, in its inception when the, in the evil things, the supposedly, you know, frankenfish spawned its way out of the Crofton Pond. Uh, my restaurant in Annapolis, we, uh, we serve them quite a bit. And they're a Japanese delicacy. Um, and now you're going to tell me they taste just like chicken. Uh, halibut? I'd say like cross between like a halibut and a freshwater eel. Okay. Um, so that's nothing to sneeze at. That's a great fish. And the puffer fish? The puffer fish is kind of the blowfish that um, is another invasive species. And apparently that's... Well, blowfish used to be described to me as chicken of the sea. It is. It's delicious. They're little. They're, you know, about yay yeah. big, about four inches long. They have no rib cage. That's how they, you know, expand like that. They puff up. Uh, they do have the center vertebrate, so you kind of eat them like a chicken wing, like a buffalo wing, but it's fish. So when they mess with my oystermen, my oystermen sell them to me, and we dress them up and sell them. So it's fun to help out the environment and, and have some good snacks. So I can as walk well. into your restaurant and say, What's the puffer, puffer fish wearing tonight? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amazing. What's the one thing on your menu? Let's forget crab cakes now, but what's the one thing on your menu that would be surprising to me? Uh, let's see. Surprising to you. I think, uh, I think our Thai seafood hot pot might be surprising because I'm a white guy, and I get people complimenting all the time like, that's great. How long did you spend in Thailand? If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. Right now, I'm joined by the founder of a very unusual museum here in Baltimore. In fact, when we talk about it as a one-of-a-kind museum, we're not kidding. It's called the American, and she's going to have, she's got some explaining to do. It's the American Visionary Art Museum, and her name is Rebecca Hofberger. How are you, Rebecca? I'm really well, thank you. I mean, when we talk about something called the American Visionary Art Museum, uh, that implies someone who's forward-looking, that implies somebody who's intuitive, that, right, a lot of it to do with intuition, Right. Yes, it's a national museum founded wholly on the belief that intuition is what fuels all truly creative things, not just what we call art, but in science and music and uh, creative acts of social justice. You got a lot on your plate there. Yeah. Yeah, I use the museum as a scam to get on the phone to anybody I've ever really, you know, admired. So I've worked with Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Rosie O'Donnell in a, a year-long exhibition. On Together? Cat. Yes. Together? Yes. She, he thought she was his driver because her idea of dressing up was like this little Nehru suit. And he didn't know who she was, but they became friends at our museum. And, and we, the purpose of bringing them together was? Well, I every year I pick one grand theme that has bedeviled or inspired inspired humanity. And I, I decided that we should look at character for a year communally. And it was called race, class, and gender. Three things that, com, uh, that uh, you know, 
that contribute zero to character because being a schmuck is an equal opportunity for everybody. And people would cry in that show and they would laugh. And um, actually, you know, what? You, huh? you could have just done a schmuck rep- retrospective. <laughs> well, uh, that I think that's being done at a large scale right now. So. <laughs> I'm not going there. <laughs> Don't I go there. Oh, okay. There. <laughs> no, but the point is, you could have fun with this museum. Yes, very much so. Um, I have to say, I did a show on religion uh, to celebrate the um, 800th birthday of the poet Rumi. And who was in town but Matt Groening, uh, who created, you know, the uh, the Simpsons, everything else. And his son was really unhappy here at some school. And so he came five days in a row. And he said, I go to museums all over the world. I've never been absolutely brought to weeping openly in any museum. I said, what, what made him cry? Um, I think uh, there, it, we have that element in almost every exhibition. There's something that will tickle that part of you that opens you up. But at the same time, uh, I said to him, well, I've, I'm doing an exhibition on authentic joy, and I've never met anyone who has made more people laugh. Okay. And he Stupid became, question. Wait, yeah. I got to give you the. Go ahead. How do you do a, a, an exhibition on authentic joy? Well, you look at... First of all, how do you define it? Well, that's a very good point. So uh, what you look for are subsets of it. I had to look up what was the oldest joke book ever recorded. It turns out it was from the ancient Greeks. And uh, when you look into it, it was a book entirely of flatulence jokes. In ancient Greek, even then, they thought that was funny, particularly men. So I had, from Mel uh, Brooks, I had uh, Blazing Saddles. Yes, I had... The the, the fireplace, the the campfire scene in Blazing Saddles. Exactly. The legendary scene. Or or I I think the title of the gallery was Toot Sweet, you know, from his (laughs) Beans Beans. So that was one. And then it turns out that the greatest work of art at the... uh, very well-funded Cleveland Art Museum is a 300-year-old Asian scroll, and it's beautiful in all the way uh, Asian art can now, be. Now, please don't tell me that at the end of the scroll, it talks about farting. No, the entire scroll talks about the fart wars between the Buddhist monks. Are you serious? Yeah, and it's absolutely beautiful, but that's the only subject of the entire huge uh, you know, so what, you're, so what you're saying, Rebecca, is if I get to the top of the mountain in Nepal yes. or in Tibet and there is the Dalai Lama and I ask him about the, the, the meaning of life, he's going to fart and tell me to go to the museum? Uh, no, but he did write for us. He, he wrote an essay for us. So this, for example, we, we, we work with many Nobel Prize winners. We work with people who are kind of hidden saints who do an awful lot of good with very little fanfare. Well, all kidding aside and yeah. all fart jokes aside. Yes. I mean, this is a museum, if, if your mission is successful, it's to open my eyes in a completely different direction. Correct. For well, I'll tell you one thing. Right now, our great mystery show is up, and I look at sub-mysteries. And one of them For is example. the mystery of the human heart. And I read scientific journals all the time because, for me, that's such cutting-edge, fresh thought, you know? It inspires me a lot. So I found out that researchers in Australia discovered that our human hearts, have taste bud receptors in them, not for sweetness or saltiness, only for bitterness. And it turns out when we're full That explains of, a lot of my friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, it explains why broken heart syndrome, when people would die yeah. of literally... Of, bro- of a broken heart. Yeah, but they would do autopsies and there would be no blockage to the heart. 
Would you please explain to me the Edgar Allan Poe connection? <laughs> yes. Uh, Baltimore has always been a cauldron of kind of intense creativity. And, when and Edgar Allan Poe was here. Edgar Allan Poe is here. He's buried here. The Raven. Uh, in a Rosicrucian pyramid grave that you can visit. But I always like to tell people a riddle. And that is, what do Jerry Lee Lewis, as in Great Balls of Fire, have in common with Edgar Allan Poe, the father of the modern mystery? And by the way, how did you find this out, which is the, which is the craziest thing? Go ahead. Tell me. I already know. Go ahead. They both married their 13-year-old first cousins. As one would do, I guess. Well, yes. back in the day, yeah. But uh, just the whole city. Wait, wait. They, you didn't ask me. How did you find that out? Well, I was a young member, lifelong member of the Edgar Allan Poe Society. And when I saw it, I knew that they both had that in common. So I put it together. Oh, my God. Yeah. All right. But there are other connections here. Yes. The Ouija board was patented here by two warring brothers. And one of them wanted to run for city council, and you couldn't be Jewish at the time. And so he stopped that, and that part of the family became Episcopalian, and the other stayed observant. But the Ouija board was here. Okay, wait, 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 wait. When was the, honestly, when was the last time you saw one or even used one? A Ouija board. Oh, we have it in our current show, The Great Mystery Show, right now. Are you kidding? They always have it like during times of flux. People want to know if their child on the other side of the world. No, time in war. of insecurity. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, you know what? We need it right now. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but Baltimore, like the first shots of the Civil War, did anybody tell you this? Is like almost the stone's throw from this hotel. They were Southern sympathizers who shot at Northern troops coming through on Pratt Street. But uh, there's so much richness here, like the great plaques and wax. I, I the may great have, what? Great plaques and wax is the most unbelievable. Oh, no. I know it. I yeah, know. yeah, you know. So I'm very proud of that. We have a world-class symphony that should be number one best paid. It's number 14 on the 14 orchestras in this country. And I'm telling you, Marin Alsop is a genius. So our, our movie history, you love John Waters? My gosh, what a we have a 10-foot statue of Divine uh, at the American Visionary Art Museum. And uh, You have a 10-foot statue? Yes, yes, of Glenn Milstead, a.k.a. Divine. You can genuflect there. And uh, there's uh, such a rich thing, you know, diner. I bet you're a diner fan, are you not, Barry Levinson? Uh, well, Barry Levinson's a Baltimore guy. Absolutely. So I'm saying it's it's a city of creative one-offs. And if that's in your DNA, this is a great place to come and live. It's There's so much here. In the words of Jim Rouse and our third building, did you know the actor Ed Norton is his grandson? Ah. Yeah. Okay. So the developer of the Inner Harbor, Jim Rouse of Blessed Memory, um, um, we have the Jim Rouse Visionary Center, and he said the best thing about cities. He said cities were meant to be gardens in which to grow beautiful people. And if they're not doing that, they're not doing their job. All right, so I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm asking other guests this question, too, but I'm going to ask you this. Okay. The derivation of Charm City. Oh, We've gone through so many things. I'm telling you, Peter, we've gone through city that reads and everybody said, oh, no, they'll say city that bleeds. But the charm city was really under our mayor, um, uh, Schaefer at the time, who was quite a character, who was kind of a charmer, uh, would dress up with a, you know, duck, a duck and, you know, an old fashioned bathing suit and jump in the harbor to promote it. Shameless, you know, uh, in a good way. And, um, you know, there is that idea of that it's full of charm. It was also called the 
city of monuments for years because we have such an incredible array of statuary. See, I thought the, the rumor that I saw about, about Charm City had to do with a bracelet. Oh, you know more. Th- See, you have to get the profit from a no, out of town. I'm just Who make, knew? I make it up as I go along. No, oh, <laughs> no but somebody actually told me that. What what about Baltimore would be a, a likened to a charm city? Well, no, it's, it charm came from bracelet? a bracelet, a charm bracelet. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Huh. I didn't know that. See? I'm, I'm sorry. You were too busy with the Ouija yeah, board. Yeah, yeah, I was, and with Madame Murray O'Hare, who knew? Yeah. The uh, original atheist. Yeah, the, the one who took prayer out of school, she did it right she, from here. Right here. Yeah. But also the Quaker movement was so strong here. Uh, whether you hear the name Johns Hopkins or whether you hear, you know, uh, Enoch Pratt for our libraries, there, uh, and then you had Frederick Douglass who came here and had, you know, was kind of a great engineer at the shipyard, and that literally would be outside the the door to the Sagamore Pendry. The, uh, there's a small museum uh, that's dedicated where, to that's him. That's where uh, Frederick Douglass was. Exactly. Unbelievable. Yeah. We're talking with Rebecca Hofberger, the founder of the American Visionary Art Museum. In your entire museum, what would you say is your most surprising exhibit for someone like me? Oh. Right now, I have a DMT molecule chandelier made by a local artist. DMT means? Uh, it's the psychoactive part of, of uh, ayahuasca. And we have the mystery. I knew that. Uh, it's the mystery of what it is to be a human being, of life and death, and how do we know what we know? You know, when we say I, what are we talking about? Because most of our bodies, we have about 30, 30 trillion human body cells, but we have 39 trillion little parasites, viruses, bacterias, that we are like the planet. You know, we're the system that we're walking around, hosts all that stuff. So the question is, what is, what I think St. Francis said, what we're looking for is what is looking and you're a good looker. I know that you go around the world feasting. You've got the best scam going of anyone I know. You go to cities. They open up everything for you, Peter. You're one genius to have figured this out. Listen, I'm still trying to get over Jerry Lee Lewis and Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest, 25 years ago, figured this out. She actually founded the nation's first wax museum, wax museum celebrating black history. And her name is Dr. Joanne Martin. Dr. Welcome. Thank you very much. And it's right here in Baltimore. Yes, it is. Now, when I say I didn't know this, until we did our research, I didn't know that even such a museum existed. This is news to me. And uh, we hear that a lot. Um, And and amazingly uh, for us, most of our visitors are from out of state. Um, and they they do return visits. Um, we've been in a in a number of uh, of publications and news media. So um, we 
our name is out there, but not far and wide enough. And what, you know, it, it, you know, in recent history, you know, when I when I heard the president, you know, uh, <laughs> say that Frederick Douglass is doing a great job, I was like, wait, <laughs> hello, wait a minute. Even I <laughs> had done my history on that. Uh, I'm assuming. Frederick Douglass is a prominent feature in your museum. Um, in, in fact, we um, unveiled a wax figure, a new wax figure. We've had him from the very beginning. We started out with four uh, wax figures. Who were your first four? Um, Frederick Douglass. Uh, what a lucky <laughs> guess on my part. <laughs> uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, Nat Turner, and John Brown. And okay, the the, the the second woman you mentioned, Mary. Mary McLeod Bethune. Yeah. Tell me her history. Uh, Mary McLeod Bethune. She was a um, good friend of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, she started a, um, Mary McLeod Bethune started a school, uh, a college in Daytona Beach, Florida that still exists. It was um, Daytona Beach, uh, it was Bethune-Cookman College at the time and now uh, Bethune-Cookman University. Um, she started out with almost no money uh, and she sold sweet potato pies and so forth to get her, um, her school started. Um, a lifelong commitment to, uh, to education. All right, now, Nat Turner, of course, for those people who study black history, we know all about Nat Turner. We, we do. Um, but one could say that his, uh, and my husband, my late husband, Elmer, used to say that history could be divided into, um, or the, um, the whole idea of slavery could be divided into um, BNT and ANT before Nat Turner and, and after Nat Turner because he changed a lot of the thought, um, some of the things that um, came into being, like the fugitive slave law and, and, and the crackdown on slavery, because the idea that you had uh, these happy darkies toe-tapping them, them, their way through the cotton fields and Nat Turner and, and the, the, um, uh, any number of uh, uprisings showed that that was not the case. That turned it around. That turned it around. Of course, I'm sure you have Underground Railroad people. Oh, yes. Um, interesting uh, Underground Railroad people like, uh, of course, you expect the Harriet Tubman. Um, right. We have um, a scene in the museum where uh, Thomas Garrett, the, um, the white abolitionist from Delaware, is putting a slave through a faux stove, and on the uh, other side of the, of the stove is Harriet Tubman because it's a, it's a tunnel. And Thomas Garrett worked very closely with uh, and, and helped to fund um, a number of the Underground Railroad effort. Um, we have uh, Henry Box Brown, who mailed himself uh, to freedom. Um, and um, so, yes, the Underground Railroad story is prominent in the museum. Okay, for those of us who are somewhat more enlightened than others, and I'm, I'll put myself like somewhere middle in that list in terms of black history, well, who is the one person featured there that is your surprise person who really was pivotal in, in black history that people may not recognize? Well, I guess there are there are so so many. What people tend to um, respond to is um, is our slave ship exhibit, because they have no idea of, about of how it was how, of, of how it was. Um, they have no idea about the duration of it. Um, that the slaves did no did not go gently into that good night, and so that um, they were chained. They were they were chained, but they looked for every opportunity, every weakness uh, in the captain and the crew to um, to fight, to revolt, to rebel. And so rebellion uh, was a, um, a very prominent part of the of that experience. But also that you had um, three 
uh, groups of slaves. The, um, the, you had the men's quarters, women's quarters, and boys' quarters. And so boys as young as six years old were on, on the slave ship. Um, girls, very seldom were there girls uh, younger than 12 because they weren't childbearing age. Oh, boy. But, um, but, but boys were very prominent. Amazing. Where is the museum located? We're located in, in a, uh, the heart of uh, Baltimore City, East Baltimore, at 1601 East North Avenue. Well, if you're looking for a different experience and one that I would actually say is unexpected, especially if you grew up watching Madame Tussauds, this is a whole different experience. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. When you walk into this hotel, I mean, I remember, you know, the old harbor. I remember a lot of things that weren't done. Uh, this is an amazing piece of architecture, even if it wasn't a hotel. Uh, and if you go back in history and you find out what it did, that proves the point. But my next guest, you know, has seen that the, the change happen. He's the, he's the general manager here, David Hoffman. How are you, sir? Good morning, Peter. Great to have you. Yeah, I mean, quite a transformation. An amazing transformation, what they did with this property. Built in 1914, this pier. And, and to have the vision to, to really transform it into this amazing hotel is, is really spectacular. I mean, it was built in 1914 as what? Well, it was built initially, as, 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 as you heard earlier, Locust Point was a, a great port for immigration. And, and people would come through this building to get into the United States. And then it really became a community center. I saw a very old guy down there with stamps on past. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Okay, fine, no, no. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He's still there. He's our doorman now. <laughs> uh, but they, uh, you know, this became a community center. And then it became the rec pier, uh, recreation pier. And that, that's where people gathered to, to tell story and dance and have fun. And but we're talking about the 1920s, 1930s. That's right. Exactly right. And then in the later years, it became a, a movie set. Homicide Life on the Streets, Streets was filmed here. Some great movies like Step Up and Step Up 2 were filmed here. So uh, I know those are your favorites. Um, oh, yeah. Some, some really great things happened on this on this property. Yeah, you were correct except for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, this is part of a total transformation of this area. Total transformation. What's happened here in Baltimore and what's happening still is, is really amazing. It's an incredible place to be right now and, and some really amazing experiences to have. Now, you and I share one thing in common. We both went to school in Wisconsin, but I went to Madison, you went to Marquette. Uh-oh, this is a problem. It is a very big problem. <laughs> I'm still talking to you. At one point, you had a pretty good basketball team. Well, at one point, we had a pretty good basketball team, and I see a great future ahead of us, that's for sure. <laughs> so do the Cleveland Browns. Yeah, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I just had to mention that. I had, had to, to take it. a stab. Had to take the stab, yeah. But listen, you've been a, a GM or a resort manager in a number of different properties. This is a big challenge, too. Big challenge. You know, it, I've been with Montage International, which is our parent company, for 15 years, starting at our first property in Laguna Beach. And uh, opening in a hotel in Baltimore is, is, is interesting. It's retelling the story of, of what this community is about and how great it is. Um, and it really is an amazing community to be in, and we're excited. But when you talk about challenge... It's one thing to transform a waterfront. It's one tra one thing to transform an apron. Then you got to make it work. That's exactly right. And yeah. and what did you do here in the design of this hotel? When you know, you had a building that was basically protected, it was historic. You had to work with the with the footprint you were given. 
So what did you do differently that you were able to do to make a, a, a bigger difference? Well, I think it's, it started with the construction phase of this property. I mean, we had to, to do almost 500 pylons into the water just to structure it. And one of the neat things about doing that is we came across three cannons underwater uh, that date back to the 1700s, and we pulled those up, and they're now located within the property. But the simple structure and the historic and design of, art of this hotel and combining those three was really a challenge. And, of course, you've got to, I mean, this is a particular interest of mine, you have a whiskey bar. We have a whiskey bar, and one of those cannons is buried in the floor of that whiskey bar, and it's now called the cannon room. And with enough whiskey, you can actually fire the cannon. There is no question about it. We can fire those <laughs> cannons with the whiskey in there. A lot, of, a lot of Sagamore rye is served through that room. Explain, you know, it's interesting. People talk about whiskey. There's been, a, a, well, essentially a revolution in, in terms of the American product, but almost immediately rye itself. Exactly. Sagamore, you know, the rye whiskey industry is, is taking off right now, and we're trying to bring that back to what was such an important part of this community ages ago. And uh, the Sagamore rye whiskey, which we distill right here locally across the harbor, um, has had a great impact and has really taken off within the community. So, but what you're telling me is you can source it. I can source it. That's exactly right. <laughs> you have an unending supply. Yeah, unending. Whatever you need, we can get. Um, but that's one of the great relationships we have and some of the great things we do um, with this property. Now, obviously, everybody wants a room with a view, but you've got a room with a view. You've got a hotel with a view. How did you manage light? How did you manage design to be able to do that within the square footage that you had? Well, that's, that's a great question because the square footage was always a challenge. And one of the nice things we talk about is we're not on the water. A lot of hotels can say they're on the water. We're actually over the water, which is really a great aspect of this property. What's interesting is you talk about the water views. Uh, people are really enjoying our courtyard views, which have the, the view of the steel beams, original beams from 19. 14 and that yeah, if steel. I can paint if I can paint the picture here we're talking high ceilings absolutely yeah our ballroom and is, we're talking steel you couldn't find today give or take anybody else's government terrace they don't make that kind of steel anymore the, the steel you couldn't find and and the the crown moldings in our ballroom the the, the height of our ceilings 45 foot ceilings in our ballrooms and bringing so back someone can literally swing from the chandelier absolutely. let's just admit it I, I hate to tell you it's happened already a few times has it really yeah it's been a lot of fun um, there's some amazing Did parties you, that oh, happen up there. So basically, you can market this hotel as having a reinforced chandelier? That's exactly right. You are, <laughs> you're very true in saying that. We, we've had some amazing experiences up in that ballroom, i got to tell you. I read those police reports. Yeah, no. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but bottom line is you could you could work with, with, a, with a very strong structure. A very strong structure. And that's what's so special about this property is bringing it back to its original state and, and keeping those structures in place, which was so important to us. Plus, you had to you had to basically perform to the, to the building codes of a, of a historical building. That's exactly right. And, and that's why you'll see the original floors in our Sagamore ballroom. These are the original floors from 1914. You can hear them creak as you walk across them, which just brings back that history. But those planks are thick. Those planks are thick. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. 
So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.